This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Hi, everybody. David Lusondak here for Body Talk. And I know I said last week we were going to go to bi-weekly episodes, so every other week. And here I am just a little over a week later, dropping a new pod on you. However, this was too good and the timing was too excellent. I'm talking to science writer Rachel E. Gross about her new book, Vagina Obscura. And we're dropping it today here on Body Talk. Let's just get right to it. Hi, everybody. Today on Body Talk, I am so happy, finally, after quite some time trying to arrange this, having science writer Rachel E. Gross on the podcast. She currently writes for the New York Times, Scientific American, and the BBC. And her new book, which is fantastic, Vagina Obscura, comes out at the end of March. It's available on all the platforms. We'll have it in the show notes. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, David. I'm so glad to finally be here. Me too. Me too. So let's just dive right in. Your particular penchant for writing is on the the human reproductive and sexual systems, shall we say? Yes, that's perfect, actually. Uh, It's kind of hard to define the set of organs I'm interested in, but I often call it the vagina et al, or the vagina and colleagues. Um, (laughs) Vagina and friends. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But reproductive and sexual system sums it up well. Where did your interest in that start? I've always been interested in women's health, medicine, and bodies. My my mom's a doctor. I have studied science journalism for a long time, and I really like talking about topics that make people squirm. So often, <laughs> <laughs> so you you definitely get the party invites because I like those guests. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely within this podcast, it would be appropriate. Um, But yeah, I like talking about vaginas, UTIs, my IUD. So I always had a penchant for that. And Mm -hmm. I had an experience when I was at Smithsonian Magazine, where I kind of realized that I knew much less than I thought about my own vagina. That must have been weird. Yeah, it was just kind of a, a moment where you confront what you don't know. And kind of are sent back upon yourself. Well, we're not exactly encouraged to learn about our vaginas or for that matter, our penises. They're just sort of there and we're expected to know what to do with them and how to keep them healthy, but we don't really get any guidance, let alone uh, healthy ways to talk about how to ask for guidance, do we? Yeah, exactly. I think the way we talk about male and female genitals is pretty different in some ways, but it's definitely a problem of like kind of shame, stigma, and silence that affects all bodies. And I think your point about like how to even talk about it in a healthy way is something that came up again and again when I was writing this book, that we just literally don't have the language to talk about it. Whenever you try to talk about like the reproductive and sexual system less formally, all the words are like you're naming Voldemort. There's like the nether regions. <laughs> Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Yeah, it's like, it, it's like you can't say it. Like mm-hmm. the name yeah. itself 
itself is like an unnaming there's oh like, yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 it's penis is is not the easiest word to say in 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 mixed company <laughs> Yes. Or even in, in a medical context. And I hate, I had 12 years of Catholic school. Okay, so I, I'm fighting that. Yeah, wow. You know the shame and stigma intimately then. Well, you know, somewhat. <laughs> but differently <laughs> than you. So, so what happened to you? So it was summer 2018 and I found myself having a lot of itching down there, which could be a UTI, could be a yeast infection, don't really know. But my gynecologist decided it was a yeast infection and gave me an antifungal and I used that. It didn't go away. I went back. She looked at my urine sample and said, actually, it's probably a bacterial infection. Here's some antibiotics. That was horrible. They come in this plunger of white cream that you have to yeah. inject in yourself and lie on your back. Um, and fun. it's... Yeah, so I was having a great time, but it was like a month in and I was still itching constantly. Mm -hmm. um, and sorry for any TMI, because I don't have a filter. Yeah, um, that, no, that's good. It's a podcast. You're not supposed to have a filter. And the details are important here. They are. Um, <laughs> so I'm like itching all the time at work and I literally have to go to the bathroom to itch, which is an ordeal because this is a Smithsonian Institution building and you have to use a key card to get into the office every time you come back. So and then there's a report just, at the end of the month saying, Rachel, you're going to the bathroom too much. <laughs> yeah, there would have been, or just some like awkward glances. So anyways, that was going on. And I go back to my gynecologist after like a month of this. And I will always remember um, how she responded. I was like, there's got to be something you can do. Like, what is there beyond antibiotics? And she said, okay there actually is something, it's a last resort, it's called boric acid, and it's basically rat poison. <laughs> and I felt oh. like- Oh, <laughs> use the aphrodisiac in some countries. <laughs> <laughs> uh, used to kill roaches and rats in others. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it sounded like she was giving me like an option off the Starbucks secret menu on one hand. But that's frightening, <laughs> that's frightening. On the other hand, yeah, exactly. It was like off book, off label. Um, <laughs> I know and, the guy. Meet me at the back. Yeah, door. exactly, exactly. Um, and she and she also said like she, it often didn't work. Like it was basically just this really stubborn bacterial infection. It's called BV, and I mentioned that just because at least a third of women have it um, in America. So most likely, some of you listeners have it. And yet there's no good cure. There was just rat poison. So I went to the pharmacy and I got this prescription. It was like a normal pill container. And then it had a skull and crossbones and it said poison in red letters. And like, I, I think I said before, I'm not a person who feels much shame. I like to talk about cringy topics. Like when I got my IUD, I got the ultrasound of it in my, in my cervix. And I pasted it on Instagram and said like congratulations <laughs> to me I'm not a mother <laughs> how many likes did you get Rachel at least 20 and none were my mom uh <laughs> so <laughs> so she's a doctor she's a doctor she didn't always approve of my communication style mm -hmm. um but yeah so this was the first time I actually kind of felt ashamed to get a prescription and I felt dirty and 
it was just really new to me because like logically there was no reason to feel that it was a really common bacterial infection. Um, it's nothing really I did, but it just like, I remember like breaking down and crying in front of my partner at the time, just feeling like uh. dirty and unlovable. And that was weird. And then I took that for another like week. And one day I forgot to take it at night and I slept at my partner's place and I woke up in the middle of the night and kind of realized like that I forgot a medication. So I went to the bathroom with the pill canister and I guess I was not fully awake because I took oh. out a pill. <laughs> yeah, I looked at the pill and they look just like um, any antibiotic pill, like a plastic capsule with powder in it. And I just swallowed it. So I swallowed the rat poison and it specifically said on the bottle not to do that. Um, and obviously I freaked out. I went on my phone and Googled and the first result said boric acid is a dangerous poison and it cited deaths by boric acid and the poison control hotline. Um, and yeah, I just kind of figured that I was going to have my stomach pumped at best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that somewhere your brain's going, this is a stupid way to die. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what a humiliating thing to have on my grave. Like, this is gonna be so <laughs> yeah, those were my concerns. No, I, I can't explain Already writing her epitaph. <laughs> I know I was not, I did not have the wherewithal to have those thoughts. It was more like, I was just like, oh God, oh God, oh God. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to the ER and again, I thought I'd have my stomach pumped or something. The doctor called poison control and then he basically laughed at me. He said like, you would have had to take a cup of this substance. Yeah, to do anything bad. And you didn't he didn't know. Of course, I didn't know. And I even looked it up online and still didn't know. And I didn't get any information from my doctor, not through her fault, but just, it was like a foreign substance. And basically I had some crackers and apple juice they gave me at the ER and I was fine. And they said, I might have a little gas, but after I kind of realized I wasn't going to die, that's when I had this weird, like confrontation with myself that I was mentioning where I was like, wow, I just accepted what my doctor said like I didn't know anything about this poison that I was putting in my body mm -hmm. and I just assumed that I was like an informed person who knew enough about science in my body yeah you were an extra informed person I thought so yeah um, <laughs> but now I kind of am amazed at everything I didn't know but you don't know what you don't know if that's Definitely. Yeah, no, that's true. You absolutely, you don't know what the, the, the unknown unknowns. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what sort of science were you writing about in the context of this happening in your personal life? Where was your focus at that point? Mm, I was um, the science editor at Smithsonian Magazine at that point. So it was a really broad array of like astronomy, um, archaeology, climate change. Um, but like as a science reporter before that and as an editor, I did always love to write about like reproductive science, like I had done an article for Slate finding that like half of UTIs are misdiagnosed as yeast infections, which I was always shocked about, like how is that possible? And I had edited stories on the science of the quote unquote abortion pill, the history of sperm science, and women in history of science, like we started one of the early columns on kind of these 
unsung female scientists. One was an anatomist who actually focused on the penis in the 1600s, I believe, which was totally out there. So I was writing about women in science on the one hand and the science of women on the other hand. Um, so these were That's definitely, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah. So these were definitely like ideas swirling in my head at the time. And I hadn't found a way to like bring them together yet. Uh, but this kind of got me thinking, like, it seems like even doctors don't know much about this part of the body. Why? And, and, and I'm going to add to that. I just discovered a book yesterday about, and, and I, I don't have her name in my head. I apologize. But she was from the 1920s, 1930s. And she is credited as being the founder of physical therapy. Really? What's, yeah, I know. I know. I, 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 I stumbled. Wait, we should write about her. Yeah. I stumbled across it on Amazon and I'm like, oh, I got to get this book right away. And how come I've never heard of this person before? And I, nobody's, nobody I've ever talked to has ever mentioned this person before. Right. So it's a whole missing part of, uh, even our recent history. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that actually the reasons why you've never heard of them before are sometimes the most interesting thing to look into and write about. Do on a little tangent here, there was uh, Dr. Janet Travell. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so she and her colleague, uh, David Simons, are recognized as being the people who mapped and studied this whole idea of trigger points in the muscle as being sources of pain and dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And she was actually the personal physician to JFK and wow. apparently helped him out a lot, but mostly through manual therapy means, hey, that's my, that's my bailiwick. Mm -hmm. And uh, when she turned in her thesis paper, I believe, and this would be in the 50s, it was rejected, but uh, they did comment that the formatting was really pretty. Oh my God. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I may be slightly paraphrasing, but not by much. Did they even give a reason why they rejected it? <laughs> I, I'd have to go back and look at that. And if I got this fact wrong, I know one of my listeners is going to correct me. So <laughs> that's a, a fact checking. Yeah. You know, the little, the little pat, the little pat on the head and, and go and go, which is why, and I'm just going to do this. Perhaps secretarial a, school would be good for you, honey. Yeah. Uh, so the, the woman who pioneered, founded, uh, although she said it must have always existed in some respect, the therapy that I is part of my foundation uh, was Ida Rolf, who got her PhD from Columbia in 1921. Whoa. In, was... yeah, in, in uh, chemistry and biological science. I mean, just think about what it took to do that in 1921. I kind of figure she was like this exception, like the only woman in her class. I, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't looked into it enough, but definitely a, a force of nature. Uh, for sure, wow. to kind of yeah. plow through that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So to bring it back, did you start conceiving? Uh, no pun intended. Did you start conceiving? <laughs> yeah, every pun intended. The book um, <laughs> at this point in time, or was it more like, I need to learn more about this for me? I knew I was going to do a book that was somehow going to be about the science of vaginas. And I was luckily in a place where I could do a lot of background research at the Smithsonian. I started using like my lunch break and my days off to go to a sperm science lab at the University of Maryland. I watched a clouded leopard get artificially inseminated. 
at the Smithsonian Zoo. Wow, um, that's um, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, it was if I had that opportunity, I would have went. I get it. Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah, I got to see some really cool things and usually report on them. Yeah. Um, so when I started talking to all these reproductive scientists, like they were really just confirming the suspicion I had because um, I had just had like a personal medical experience, but the sperm biologists were all telling me like, yeah, we actually still don't know what cervical mucus is made of. Um, we have people that are like trying to focus on like the female reproductive tract and its role in conception, but there's so little known about it. And it's really difficult to get inside the female reproductive tract. And I was like, really? Because it's 2018. And like, we know a lot about sperm and penises. Mm -hmm. And I just kept hearing that we knew so much less. And there were all these gaps in our knowledge about both women and specifically like reproductive organs. So that's changing a lot now, obviously. And yeah. that was because we've got more female doctors, I assume. Is that a correct That's definitely, it's definitely a big reason. Like it sounds almost like too simple to be yeah, right, but, um, but no, that's a big thing I found in my book. And it turned out that there were so many kind of newer uh, female, non-binary LGBT scientists mapping these parts that each chapter sort of ended up centering on one of them and how they were reimagining this organ that had been mapped in a very specific way by anatomists who were often white, male, and from former centuries. Former centuries literally or just figuratively in their head? Sometimes either or. Who is one of the scientists that stands out for you in, in a book of standouts, I have to say? I could not put it down. Thank you. Oh man, there really were a lot. One, there's a few historical scientists and a few modern scientists. Um, there's one historical scientist that I became super obsessed with. Her name is Miriam Mencken, and she actually achieved in vitro fertilization, just like the union of egg and sperm outside the body in the 1940s, like at the end of World War II. She worked with John Rock, who's most famous for helping create the birth control pill, but she was literally not even a footnote in history. She did not manage to get her PhD for the same reasons that the woman you mentioned were, were up against. Like they really weren't accepting women into medical programs at that time. And yet she was able to become a technician and a scientist in her own right in uh, John Rock's lab. And nobody else in the world who was trying this could do it, but she did it. So I, I really got into her archives, which are at the um, Harvard Center for the History of Medicine. And she, she used to write poetry. She wrote these long letters. She had just a crazy personal life where her husband kept getting fired from every job he had at Harvard and other universities. And he, um, and she just had to deal with not just like childcare, but pursuing her scientific passion after being uprooted many, many times. Like once she made this historic discovery and got this in vitro fertilization, which made me think, okay, well then why didn't we have the first IVF baby until the seventies? Um, well, it was partially because her husband lost his job. And so she had to leave Rock's lab 
and she had to follow him to North Carolina and she had to help make ends meet and take care of a child with disabilities. So nobody else achieved in vitro fertilization in that decade. And well, it wasn't that the information was buried. She just wasn't able to follow up on it. And obviously it's about more than one person. Um, always, always. But it was, it's, it's striking how much these personal details and the confines of her era shaped her science at that time. She managed to come back eventually to John Rock and she helped him a lot with the contraceptive pill research program um, and never really returned to IVF. Uh, and she really felt like it was this dream thwarted and that it was the one thing that had given her purpose in her life. So I don't know, I really like identified with her story and she was very human and also clearly very brilliant, but was not seen as a peer to those kind of huge scientific names that we all know. Was her research rediscovered and then uh, repurposed in the 70s or was it an independent discovery that did not acknowledge or even be aware of the existence of what she'd done? So they basically kind of repeated what she had done. So she was trying um, a lot of different methods to do it, different like courtship intervals for the sperm and egg, different mediums, a different like timing and basically people afterwards did a lot of trial and error before they eventually landed on what worked uh, and I don't think they ever cited her from what I've read definitely like I would talk to biologists today and they were surprised to learn about her and hadn't read her initial paper it had become kind of buried possibly just because it didn't go anywhere at the time. That, that's not uncommon for, for a lot of research. Things get discovered, not recognized, forgotten about, rediscovered 50, 60 years later with no knowledge of the previous discovery. I'm sure you've come across that. Multiple yeah, actually that's what happened to the clitoris um, in my first chapter. It's mm -hmm. literally lost and found and quote unquote discovered. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of people could uh, resonate with that sentiment. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's just very striking that a lot of men mm -hmm. suddenly would be, they'd either be like, this definitely doesn't exist in women. Only hermaphrodites have this structure. And then uh, other ones, that was Vesalius, <laughs> the father yeah, of modern yeah, anatomy. Yeah, I know, I know. He did, hey, he, he, he corrected some long-standing errors and he created yes. some new ones, uh, yes. which is kind of the way science works. So I'll, I'm not going to, yeah, you're absolutely right on that one. Uh, I'm just thinking about the, the, the ligament off the back of the clitoris from a dissection lab I did that went like halfway up the spine, what? all the way, all the way into the, the, the front part of the thoracic spine. It was this freaking huge ligament. Do you mean the nerve uh, or you mean the actual suspensory um, ligament? The, sus the suspensory ligament. And then this one specimen. I mean, you can't say that they all have that, but but this one did. What I was blown away by was, um, you know, your that whole chapter that what we think of it as is really a minimizing of this much larger wishbone-like structure. Yes, yes, exactly. So tell us about that. Tell us about that. It's so funny because like, yeah, that was kind of a revelation to me and to a lot of people I talked to, but we've actually known that since the 1800s, at least, 
So like there are anatomical drawings from this German gynecologist that show the entire clitoral structure. And yeah, like you said, I think, I kind of think of it as like this penguin spaceship. Um, so it's got the little, the nub or the P as people call mm -hmm. it, which I don't like, um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Kirk, no, we don't like that. No. Um, it's kind of like the, the control center. I don't know. It's the glands. It's the same as the head yep. of the penis. Yeah, mm -hmm. as you know. Um, and then it curves down to these two arms that flare back into the pelvis, like three and a half inches. And then these two bulbs that surround and squeeze the vagina. And all of this can become erect. It's all made of the same tissue as you find in the columns of the penis, as you know. <laughs> um, so it's like porous, erectile tissue. And there's a lot, a lot there. And even today, I look at medical textbooks that point to the glands clitoris and call it the clitoris, or they don't include the bulbs in the shape. It's baffling because it's pretty, pretty basic anatomy. Body Talk will return after the break. Well, I think it should be pretty basic anatomy, but again, making, making these changes takes a lot of time and and here we can make a nice little pivot to language because okay so one of the big ones that's happened recently is the peroneal muscles which are the muscles on the lateral aspect of the lower leg by the stuffy people in white coats i want to say 20 years ago they 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 decreed that they would no longer be the peroneals they would be the fibulari muscles you know, for relative to uh, the fibula, yes because they didn't want people mistaking, and you'll appreciate this, the peroneal for the perennial. They didn't want people making that mistake. I mean, definitely makes sense. I'm sure millions of people were really waiting on this decision. And yeah, so no, confused. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. And, no. and it, nobody, refer, very few people refer to them as, as the fibularis longus and brevis. Uh, they still refer to them by peroneal, and it's a very distinct and different name from perennial. But, but <laughs> the, the way we have named and typified, you know, and I'll, I'll speak to some of my female clients about this, you know, when I'm working, say, uh, uh, a uterine ligament in a visceral type manipulation, it's like, you know, you have parts mm -hmm. named after dudes. Isn't that weird? But it's true, right? Yeah, yeah. That's something I noticed early on in the book was every time I came across like a, a Latin name, it was named after a dude. And I don't know, it felt weird to have all these dudes names up in me that I didn't even know about a little bit. <laughs> I, I didn't ask you in, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fallopian tubes is the most obvious one, mm -hmm. but you still don't think about that. You just, for me, it just like rolls off the tongue. Like, you oh, just, it is. It's a very, it's a very feminine sounding fallopia. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's kind of nice actually. Yeah. But it was named after the same guy, Gabriel Fallopio, who claimed to have discovered the clitoris, um, which is- Up till then, nobody knew it existed. No, he hadn't asked any women. Yeah, so his name is on those. I think he kind of surmised what they actually did. And then you have the egg that ovulates every month is usually known as the graphian follicle. And that's named after another really big reproductive scientist, Rainier de Graaf who actually named the ovaries as well. They were called female testicles until he came along. Um, and he said, actually, these are not the same as testicles. Like they actually house eggs um, and they're important in their own right. The female body was also made while God was on the job. Um, and 
they should be called ovaries, which means like egg keeper or egg basket. So the graphene follicle, the vagina, though it's not named for a man, was named by a man. That was, I believe, also fallopio. Yeah, I think so. And it means sheath as in like right. for a dagger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always thought that was weird. I always thought that was weird. Not the best, no. No, no, on multiple levels. <laughs> um, I mean, then there's one that like opens up a whole new can of worms, but the G spot is actually the graphene. Gra sorry, Graffenberg. Gra yes, yeah. no, no, sorry, okay. I got confused. Oh, it's okay, it's okay. Yes, the G spot is actually the Graffenberg spot. Um, and it wasn't named by him, but it was named after him because he said he'd found this special spot on the anterior wall of the vagina that some women, when stimulated, would leak fluid that would go through the towels and have these strong orgasms. And now we have the G-spot. Mm -hmm. Now, is that a separate structure or is it part of the larger clitoral organ? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, I did a lot of sleuthing there. I talked to the kind of global clitoral guru, Dr. Helen O'Connell. She's the first female urologist in Australia. And she was asked this question so many times after she kind of mapped the internal clitoris using MRI and like modern technology that she did like specific dissections to answer that question. And she found, nope, there's no special tissue there. It's basically, um, this was like really cool for me to figure out, it took a lot of spatial thinking, but it's the belly side of the vagina and okay. the spot. Yeah. So that's the anterior wall. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, mm -hmm, exactly. Um, so if you're touching there, you're actually touching where there's the urethra that runs parallel to the vagina. And then around that wraps the bulbs of the clitoris and the arms. So there's this confluence where the arms, the bulbs, and the body and glands meet. Um, and then there's also glands there and maybe some other stuff going on. But basically that's like part of the clitoral complex as she calls it. And it totally makes sense that so you're pressing against that. The urethra is surrounded by erectile tissue from the clitoris. Um, so it's so weird to me that at least my, uh, my understanding of the G-spot from like women's magazines or whatever, WebMD, was that it was something unique that was separate from the clitoris that was in a different place and that led to a different type of orgasm. And this is what bothers me so much about the way that women's genitalia is portrayed. Like it's these like fragmented separate parts that are all floating in air, but it's all united. It's all one thing. And in this case, it's all, it's all the clitoris. It's, it's all connected to you. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Led you there. Yes. Yeah, you did. You did. Thank well you. Well done us. <laughs> <laughs> it is all connected like fascia. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, so while we're talking on words, I, I got to visit what, what actually put, brought uh, you to my attention, which was the piece you had written in the New York times back in November of 2021. Oh my God, was it? Or, or October, somewhere in there somewhere. Uh, on the pedendum, which has yes. a very unsavory uh, origin, <laughs> although nobody even thinks about it today. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad it did lead you to me. I'm so glad I could be here talking to you. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, this is something that came up also really early in my research. I had read in a lot of books about this topic that they would just kind of mention as an aside, like pudendum, which means the shame part or the part for which you should be ashamed. And I was like, wow, that's, that's weird. Um, yeah, that's heavy. And, yeah, exactly. Like nobody's, and I was also like, where does this come from? Has anyone like looked this further into this? This is the Catholic this? book of anatomy. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's in like every gynecological <laughs> textbook. <laughs> um, Mm-hmm. maybe they're all um they're all tinged with that i would say so yeah, they are. i mean colloquially your junk move your junk it's like mm. even 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 in our casual slang there's this denigration of those parts that we also hold up to this amazing esteem and i, yeah. I it's a, it's a real it's a real weird split in our psyche mm. in our body image it is and it's also like this there are these strong associations and emotions that don't come with most other body parts. And they, oh, yeah. I would, and they seep into the science and the words we use to talk about them in medicine. So I think that's where things get really uh, problematic. Yeah. Um, well, I, think, I think we identify with our genitalia in a way, say we don't identify with our liver or our spleen. Oh my gosh. Yes. You know? Absolutely. And it's really hard because like, you know, a big tenet of second wave feminism is like women are not their wombs. Um, We reject biological essentialism and the idea that we can be boiled down to our reproductive systems or that women are for reproduction. And yes, that's all true. At the same time, people do have a lot of identity wrapped up in genitals and the reproductive system, whether we should or not. And I have a chapter in the book at the end that goes into what the medical field calls neo-vaginas. And yeah, I, yeah I, that was, yeah. Good. that was, that was an <laughs> amazing chapter. Thank you. Um, it's yeah. Trans women's experience. And a lot of time, the way that they describe their genitals or like their connection to it or disconnect to it um, is so strong. And it's just so striking how much we, invest and put into this part of the body yeah and i think it it varies uh from individual to individual i think some people put a lot more of their identity into those areas than other people do and absolutely I say that it's right or wrong one way or the others you know uh but i wanted to touch on this idea that you mentioned uh before we started recording uh about the the similarities between mm. uh on the biochemical level in terms of like estrogen and testosterone in in men and women male and female yeah. in, in many ways we're more similar than different yes um that was also this recurring theme that um kept coming up for me and the first way it came up was in embryology and i had surgeons um that would describe to me the way they would say um we all start out female in the womb or like femaleness is primary and i was like that's interesting but i don't feel like that's quite right um and like the way i prefer to look at it is we have a shared basic body plan kind of a universal body plan so at six weeks um in the womb as an embryo we basically all look the same. We're like a wriggling comma with limb buds 
and a genital tubercle, uh, which is just like a bump between the legs. And we don't start to kind of get the bells and whistles and like embroider on the details until around 12 weeks, which is why you can do a sex test by ultrasound at that point. But it's, it's so striking to me, the parallels that you have all the same tissues at that point. And at one point, like the clitoris starts to grow inward, the penis starts to grow outward. You might get a labia, you might get scrotum, uh, you might get ovaries, you might get testicles, but they're all the exact same materials um, that they're growing out of like on a cellular level and they stay that way. So I always like to say that it's like a burrito and a taco. It's like basically the same ingredients, but different configuration, <laughs> which actually works nicely. <laughs> so yeah, and then the, the cool thing that I was nerding out on um, that a lot of anatomists didn't even know was that there are these remnants in the female body and the male body from the quote unquote opposite sex, um, which I had no idea. There's like a masculine, um, it's, I think it's a uterine masculinus. It's like a tiny Y-shaped rem remainder of the female ducts that's in the male urethra. And then on females, there's these little like dangling P-shaped things off the fallopian tubes that are the remnants of the male reproductive system. Because at one point- so they didn't had... form, but they didn't just wither and, and dissipate. Yeah, they're like reminders of our shared ancestry and those parallels that we're talking about. That's um, kind of cool. I, I think it really is cool. Yeah. Although I, I guess I've heard from some gynecological surgeons that the, the ones on the Philippian tubes are kind of annoying when they do surgery because they don't really do anything. But problems, problems, problems. Damn <laughs> pedicles. <laughs> um, but I think it's super cool. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's so interesting that we've evolved this idea of the opposite sexes when that's, mm -hmm. it's absolutely not. There's. I always thought the word opposite was the wrong word. I mean, from as yeah. far back as I can recall. Yeah. Know? And complementary wasn't quite right either. So I mean, the spectrum is what people use today, and I think when you like talking about the biology, like the spectrum makes a lot of sense. I guess you could look at a Venn diagram, like yeah. where there's a lot of overlap and a lot of similarities, and then the edges kind of bleed out on the other side. But yeah, so so with testosterone and estrogen. I, I think it's probably, maybe you can tell me, it's probably more well-known now that these are not just sex hormones and that estrogen's not just, right, right. So, but I guess the extent that both are super critical in other bodies was new to me. So the fact that estrogen is important for sperm development, brain development, um, and really, really important for bone density and closure in men. Men are not sensitive to estrogen. They can get this rare disease where their bones keep on lengthening and don't close. And in women, testosterone is really important for egg development, uh, as well as like mood, libido, and a host of other things. Like it's a whole body, like multi-organ substance. And yet when I went into the history of it, into its discovery, um, it was very kind of narrowly conceived as estrogen, which comes from estrus, which is like a madness or frenzy as if you were stung by a fly, a gadfly. And that refers to when animals like rats are in heat. So it was thought of as the molecule that causes you to be in heat. Um, and we get back to the rat poison. <laughs> <laughs> to come full circle, we poisoned the rats that were in heat because of estrogen mm -hmm. um, in my vagina. Um, <laughs> and 
So like when we discovered estrogen, um, they looked into like the role in bone density and it eventually would be very important for developing the pill. But one of the very first uses was for menopause. And they literally called it the essence of femininity. Like they treated menopause like it was this deficiency disease. And the answer was putting back in estrogen, um, which is super simplified and just like a really limited way of looking at estrogen. Just like you're running out of X, we're going to insert X into the body and you'll be a female again and you'll, your femininity will return. Well, that's, that's kind of what we do with supplements, whether it's collagen or the, you know, the, the new substance of, of the month, you know, okay, you don't have enough that will give you more of that and everything will be fine. Uh, maybe not. Right. And like, do the, do some of those substances have substances have lots of other uses and effects? Like, like we just talked about how estrogen is this multifaceted molecule and yet they were using it as specifically kind of this essence of femaleness that was like like it was used as chemical castration for people who were gay like Alan Turing um yeah, in the yeah. UK so it was specifically used as this female feminine thing um and that was super weird to me and that I think like delayed thinking about all the other uses and all the other things it does and investigating that scientifically and I'm just thinking human progress is so slow. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the two steps back, one step forward, discovering yeah. and rediscovering. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of bef- that. before we run out of time, there's one particular topic I want to cover. And forgive me, I don't remember it being in the book, but it was in an article that you sent over about Dr. Griffith and endometriosis. And this... I had an experience back in the 1990s with a family member who suffered from terrible endometriosis. The recommendation was a hysterectomy. And she was like, thank God somebody finally told me how to stop this because it was horrible. Um, so, so, So this is something that, first of all, blew me away that a lot of people still don't even know that term or know what it is or really understand how it works. And I know I have a lot of female listeners and I think this would be of particular interest to them. So why don't you kind of unpack that for us, Rachel? Absolutely. I'm so sorry your family member went through that. Um, Thank you. I I talked to a lot of, of women who had endometriosis in the 90s and it was not good then. I wouldn't say it's good now, but particularly awful then. I was also shocked. I've definitely talked to editors that I had to explain what endometriosis was when I was pitching that story and others. But I will say that since I started that, and that is, it is like one of the last chapters in the book goes into endometriosis and the idea of bioengineering the uterine lining um, and how dynamic it is. So when I looked into that a couple of years ago, it was far lesser known. Like now there's actually sh- like a lot of awareness comparatively. And weirdly, endometriosis is kind of known as this like poster child disease that is has like more funding and awareness than a lot of others. Like that's what you were saying. It was like uh, I think mm. it just shot up in the last year from uh, thirteen right. to twenty six. Uh, was it million mm. or billion dollars? Uh, million, the million, sadly, okay, yeah. billion. Yeah, I and wish. Yeah, indeed. How how prevalent is it? in the female population? 
It's hard to have an exact number. Um, the usual one that you hear is about one in 10 in women of reproductive age. It could be more or less, but it's so often misdiagnosed or not diagnosed. And the problem is that to get a definitive diagnosis, you actually need surgery. Someone needs to go in and identify this tissue. And, and maybe I should just say what endometriosis is. Um, so there's still confusion about it. It's when a type of tissue that is similar, but not exactly the lining of the uterus ends up growing in places where it shouldn't. So it could be close by in the ovaries, but it could be as far away as like the lungs or somewhere else in the abdomen. And it's extremely painful because of how dynamic this tissue is. So every month with your ovulation cycle with hormones, it grows vastly, it plumps up and then it eventually breaks down, sheds, and bleeds. And it's this like remarkable life cycle of this tissue. There's nothing else in the body that does this, but it becomes really awful when it's kind of executing this life cycle in the worst places possible. And so there's often no like outer evidence of this happening. And so there's been a huge history of misdiagnosis and medical dismissal. Um, and it's actually been called the new hysteria by scholars because like hysteria, it was kind of something that was dismissed as this kind of female madness, anxiety, stress, psychosomatic, and like, it's just women being hysterical. Um, and actually they had this really fast growing tissue that was ripping up their organs and gluing itself to their intestines. And still many people can't find that out because they can't get approval to get that surgery or get a doctor to even suspect they have endometriosis or other hurdles. So yeah, the, the story I wrote was um, about a bioengineer at MIT who was really crucial in the beginnings of bioengineering. So she helped create new organs from scratch. She made yeah. this this infamous ear mouse that you I see remember in biology the ear textbooks. Mouse. I remember the ear mouse. That was a nice I remember it. Me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. I remember it from biology <laughs> class. And so that was her. She was really like an architect with living cells. Um, and the whole while she was suffering from these incredibly painful, bloody periods. And it was like unimaginable pain. It was incapacitating and nobody knew what it was. She was told all sorts of crap like you are rejecting your role as a woman. I and read that and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. A doctor said that to you? I like, wish. You know, I, I have patients tell me shit doctors say to them and I'm just like, are you kidding me? Really? Yeah. Why would, uh -huh. why would you say that to another human being? Just because you can't figure it out and you're afraid to say, I don't know. I, I do think that is part of it. When you're kind of seen as an authority figure, it's hard to say, I actually don't know. Yeah, um, it's not easy to say, but it's necessary. Yeah, or to listen to the patient and what they know about their own body. Yeah, because um, it's real. It may not make sense to you, but it's real to them, and you have to approach it from that perspective. Yeah, exactly. And I really hope we're moving in that direction. So, yeah, that was not the case then. I mean, not only was it unknown, she actually, when she was teaching at MIT, um, she, there was an endocrinology textbook that she showed me that said endometriosis is a disease of neurotic white women who delay having children. Um, and I think this was like 1990 that it said that, but those were the stereotypes in scientific textbooks. Right, which again, if you're a woman of color, you're even less likely to have a doctor identify this. It's just, there's so many levels of wrongness. <laughs>
I can think of many more obvious diseases among neurotic white women than that. Okay, not the best joke. I'll cut that bit out. <laughs> That's okay. Well, maybe I won't. Maybe I won't. Uh, <laughs> up to you. Um, so she's doing bioengineering on the one hand. She is dealing with disease on the other hand. She's basically doing it silently because she's in a male-dominated um, department at MIT, this elite technology school and nobody's heard of this disease and it's not okay to talk about your period in front of your colleagues and eventually she she gets sick of this it's really awful she has to have multiple surgeries for it and is taking steroids that give her short-term memory loss um, and then her niece has the same same disease and is also like misdiagnosed and dismissed yeah, for and she's, and I remember, yeah she said that basically what exists to help my niece isn't any different than what existed for me when I was her age having the same problem. Yeah. It's got to change. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not going to change on its own. Like it's not just that medicine is going to march towards progress. Someone has to do it. Yeah. And she realized it could be her or it had to be her. And mm -hmm. so she did have the tools to do some kind of unique science on endometriosis. So she was able to build these organoids, which are basically like little models of the uterine lining in dishes and they respond to hormones so you can see them grow and shed and bleed and you can kind of tease apart what's affecting them and maybe see what's in in a uterus with endometriosis and what's in one without so that's what she's doing now she's exploring that and she just became an extraordinary spokesperson especially within places like the nih as both a patient and scientist so she's definitely helped spread awareness and is working on that and just kind of reframe the uterus as not this like inherently disease prone organ or just like the organ of reproduction and babies, but this organ of regeneration that like studying it could be really useful to stem cell therapies, to learning about immunity because all these immune cells rush to the site to essentially heal the wound every time you have your period. There's just like amazing processes going on in there. It's full of stem cells. Truly, I had no idea how amazing just the process of growing the endometria in the, the shedding process of every month and what that really means on a biological level until I read your article. And Me neither. It yeah. almost makes it less annoying. <laughs> Actually, you know, uh, um, that's an interesting perspective, but yeah, when, when, when you, when you look at, when you look at what that really means, it's, it's pretty damn incredible. And from a structural standpoint, from my standpoint, uh, when you're dealing with people who are missing organs and, and a gallbladder is not a big deal, but there is a structural component to something like the uterus that once it's gone, it changes oh. the, it changes the relationships uh, of what's going Whoa. on in the abdominal compartment. And it changes, Whoa. it changes the pressures in compressions. So That's I'm not so saying, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but I think we need to think more carefully about doing it lightly and how to help rehab those components in a different way. It's not just like we take it out and your problem's gone because other things are going to have to change because wow. we just made, we just made space where there's not supposed to be space. Yeah. Yeah. This is so interesting because yeah, it was definitely when endometriosis is identified, often the very, the first like route of therapy is hysterectomy, especially like depending what age you are. And it yeah. is, it is like, oh, just take it out. The problem will go away. 
like it's your uterus acting out so take out the uterus Mm -hmm. but like there's so many consequences from that especially when you take out the ovaries as well which yes it's worse when you do that often oh my gosh like the full body effects of like losing your hormones and going into early menopause it's crazy to me like the amount of hysterectomies that we do on women as like nah this should solve the problem Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could go down there route too with joint replacements. With what? With with joint replacements. Oh. Sometimes they're necessary. Sometimes I don't know that they are. You know, and you can be, well, I guess it's time for a new knee. And I'm thinking my grandmother never needed a new knee and she lived to be 88. It wasn't the right. same knee she had when she was 18, but it was, she was doing okay at 88. <laughs> Got the job so it's, done. Yeah, it's part of the, um, part of the, the, the mindset. Part of the mm. mindset there. So Rachel, we're coming up on the end of our time. This has been absolutely fantastic. I hope we can get you on again. I would uh, love to come back. Very soon. Great. Is there anything else we didn't cover? Anything else you want to say before we take off here today? The only thing we, we didn't finish was like the pudendum type story, but I think we got a taste of it. I think we covered the the, the, gist, the gist of that, which is the, the languaging issues and the fact that we're we're all mm. over the map with languaging, whether it's slang and colloquialism versus the, the proper anatomical language. One thing I want to call back to is Mary McMillan, the book I was telling you about, it just came out in March of last year, Mary McMillan, The right. Mother of Physical Therapy. Cool. I want to look into her story. I'm like, yeah. I want to write about her. I yeah. mean, obviously there's a book out on her. So yeah. there, there's another new one, listeners. But I was just going to mention that, yeah, what really helped me write this book and not be super cynical was getting to look through the eyes of those like modern and historical scientists who are seeing these organs in a new way and seeing them as like really exciting and full of wonder and with a lot of like lessons for all bodies and for all of science in them and when I could kind of tap into that viewpoint and say like okay there are people that are looking past this history of like shame or disease and are asking like what's left to know um that made me feel a lot more hopeful that's that's great and that's I always like being able to end a podcast on a note of hope Rachel Thank you for coming by today. All the details, listeners, will be in the show notes. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on Body Talk. Thank you so much, David. I would love to come back. Thanks so much for this discussion. Thanks for listening to Body Talk. Please leave a review wherever fine podcasts are found. Give it five stars. Leave more of a narrative review if you like. It really does make a difference. If you want to make more of a difference, please go to patreon.com backslash body talk and become a patron of the show. This is David Lasondak, structural integrator, author, fascist specialist, saying, remember, it's all connected and take care of yourself because you're the only you you have. See you next time here on Body Talk. Body Talk.